0: Everyone, welcome to The Catalyst, a platform I created to carry conversations with people that are catalyzing impactful moments within their careers, communities, and countries. As I always seek to interview the most interesting and inspiring people around, I'm happy and honored to welcome today's guest, the fabulous and ever illustrious Kim Hurston. Welcome to The Catalyst, Ms. Hurston. Oh, thank
1: you. It's so great to be here.
0: So when I first created the Catalyst, I gave myself the mandate of interviewing the most interesting and inspiring people around, which is why I'm so happy that we're speaking today. I mean, you are just an incredible woman. You went to Yale, where you studied art history. And then from there, you went on to work in prominent New York City galleries, including Pace and the Robert Miller Gallery. At Pace, at the time, I should say, Pace represented the estate of Mark Rothko, who I know is one of your favorite painters. I believe your favorite painting by him is number 20, which you've described as pure sunshine, which I think is just a lovely way to describe a painting. And Pace also represented other contemporary blue chip artists such as Chuck Close. And at Robert Miller, you engaged closely with the work of Louise Bourgeois, as well as Joan Mitchell. And after working for these galleries, you went on to establish yourself as an independent art advisor, founding Kim Hurston Art Advisory. In the earlier years, you placed works by then emerging acclaimed artists such as Richard Prince, Cindy Sherman, Jeff Koons, and Damien Hirst. Over over the time, over the years, the advisory has expanded to include modern and post-war masters, such as Pablo Picasso, Mark Rothko, Francis Bacon, and Andy Warhol. So for my research, it has really been clear to me that you've been establishing yourself in the art world for some time now. And before we talk about the incredible things you've done in your industry, I would love it if you could talk about your journey. I mean, how does one go from studying art history to rising to the level of influence and status that you find yourself occupying in the art world today.
1: Thank you for your wonderful introduction. Um, I would just like to say how much I've enjoyed listening to The Catalyst during these days in coronavirus quarantine. Every episode is a wellspring of inspiration, so well done, Audrey. One uh, thing that I think is very curious uh, is that there is no um, bar to entry to becoming an art advisor. Uh, there's no um, exam or there's no license and I think that's a bit of a pity. I always remember a colleague um, at the Museum of Modern Art recounting a story about uh, how he was taking a uh, prospective board member through the museum and uh, this collector was with his art advisor and as they were walking through the many treasures of MoMA uh, and some of the highlights of the collection, uh, this particular art advisor, for instance, didn't recognize a famous felt suit by the mythic German artist, Joseph Beuys. Um, and he didn't recognize uh, "demoiselle Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, one of the greatest works of Picasso, 1907, as to be a work by Picasso. He was more familiar with later work, work that was more in the market. Anyway, long story short, uh, this art, this art advisor, Went on uh, to become a very famous art advisor. He's got uh, incredible instincts, incredible market instincts, sheer chutzpah. And I point this out because this is one path. Uh, My path was through art history. Uh, I'm interested in the stories behind the story, Uh, his story, her story. Um, I think stories are what connect us, connects us as human beings. Uh, It's uh, what makes us human. And as you know, and as you said, I studied at Yale, and Yale has one of the oldest university uh, museums. It was founded in um, 1832, uh, and um, I had the pleasure of spending a lot of time in this uh, museum, the Yale Art Gallery. The modern wing was designed by Louis Kong, one of the uh, most famous modern architects. Uh, almost 20 years later, he did the Yale British Art Center, where I also spent a lot of time. Then there was the Paul Rudolph Designed Art and Architecture Building, or as we called it, the a Building. So I was, you know, in this community off of Chapel Street uh, and it just crackled with creativity. And um, it's interesting because also nearby was something called the Yale Repertory Theater. And before I fell madly in love with art history, I had considered theater studies. Um, It was one of my early passions and still continues to be. And as a little girl, my mother would take me to see amazing uh, theater, off-Broadway, Broadway, Broadway, but I happened to see Fiddler on the Roof with Zero Mostel. I saw Pippin with Ben Vereen. I saw Hair, Jesus Christ Superstar, Godspell, all at a very young age. And I believe this has actually honed my eye almost as much as looking at painting and sculpture. So flash forward, um, sitting in my first art history class, it was an introductory, class with uh, the legendary Vincent Scully, and lights out, and those images come on the screen, and I was totally hooked. You know, know, some people were falling asleep during art history, that's when I became alive. And um, later, also at Yale, I took a class called Art After 1945, and this was a course that was originated um, by a famed curator and critic called Irving Sandler, He was responsible for um, uh, studying and critiquing the New York School, and uh, later Anne Gibson taught this class, and it was fantastic. This is where I first learned about the possibilities of art. I first learned uh, that uh, art could be a urinal, or a bottle rack, or a swirling pile of rocks in the middle of the Utah desert, uh, courtesy Robert Smithson. Um, this was mind-blowing because I just remember this enormous sense of freedom, uh, the fact that art could be just about anything uh, and everything, as you actually have, have said. And I remember uh, just this enormous sense of, of freedom and of possibility. And Ann Gibson, uh, then the teacher of the course, would take us to galleries in New York City, uh, so which was really, really fun. And I remember distinctly visiting uh, the Pace Gallery. And um, we saw an exhibition of Chuck Close, and we talked about it. And um, I knew one day that I would work at that gallery, and uh, that was gallery was Pace. So as you mentioned, after Pace and Robert Miller, um, I, uh, I went on and I worked at a very, very young gallery uh, called Stux, and that was a gallery that was downtown. So I went from working with the estates of Eva Hesse and Lee Krasner, working with Louise Bourgeois, Joan Mitchell, at this very sort of rarefied uh, environment, um, I mentioned Joan Mitchell because she was really a mentor for me. She would uh, come to the gallery and she'd throw pamphlets or Xerox copies of essays and say, "Here Yeli, read this." <laughs> and um, one of the highlights of my career was spending time with Joan Mitchell on her property um, in a place called Vitoy. Now Vitoy is famous because it was originally, and this property was originally owned by Monet. And uh, it's where he did his gardens in experimentation uh, on the path towards opening up Giverny, where he did his famous gardens and landscape and water lily paintings. So uh, it was from Vitoy and at Vitoy where I spent time with Joan Mitchell, um, but then I also would go and visit Giverny. So uh, this was tantamount to art historical heaven. But later I go and I work at a young gallery downtown called Stux, which was important for three reasons for me. Uh, First was the fact that um, the owner, Stefan Stux, became very close to the legendary dealer, Leo Castelli. And we did exhibitions uh, with this historical gallery, notably with the Starns, or then known as the Starn twins. Um, Secondly, my experience at Stux dovetailed with uh, the advent of Piss Christ and the NEA controversy and all that that brought, uh, including the onslaught of media. Uh, and thirdly, it was very, very important because uh, we threw an invitational, we held an invitational exhibition every year in January and we invited artists to submit their slides. And I remember spending during the, in the months and, and, and uh, weeks in the lead up to the invitational, we would go through literally hundreds and hundreds of slide sheets, this is dating me a bit, and we'd stay up to the wee hours of the morning discussing. And it was here that, that I really learned uh, and my eyes were sharpened and I, it allowed me to see where an artist was making groundbreaking work and where he or she wasn't. So while I was working at Stux, I was um, approached by an Italian collector from Naples, Italy. His name was Massimo Lauro, Massimo and Angelo Lauro. Uh, he wanted me to open up a gallery in New York. He wanted to back me. In a gallery venture. And at the time we were heading into recession, it was the early 90s, and uh, I suggested that we build a great contemporary collection. And that's what we did. We bought works by Jeff Koons, Cindy Sherman, Barbara Kruger, Sherry Levine, Nan Golden, Damien Hurst. Um, early on in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, because we had already been collecting Hearst, um, we bought spot paintings. Uh, we bought, we actually commissioned Damien to create a vitrine uh, with, uh, it was called Away from the Flock with the Sheep, and um, this was right after he had created the Shark in a Tank, and, uh, you know, um, that was like one of the, the great commissions, uh, again, of my career, and uh, we bought well, and we bought in depth, and that's how I became an art advisor, almost by accident.
0: That's incredible, and I, I there's there's just so much in that in your story and in your journey and i think one of my favorite things you said is that you're interested in the story behind the stories so you're interested in how artists come to be how works come to be and you kept on talking about how you sharpened your eye how you worked at this right how your eyes are your tools but i think it's really the repository that exists in your mind the references that you can pull and i think that's really incredible it does go to show that although you consider that there is no barrier to entry to being an art advisor. As you said, you really do have to sharpen it so that you can you know, spot those Monets, and you can spot those Picasso's, regardless of what's hot in the market. So I thought that was incredible.
1: It's, and it's it is a lot of work. It's a lot of diligence.
0: Yeah. No, I, I I can only imagine. And I think you also have a keen business sense too, because you wanted to open a gallery, and you said, mm, "What about a collection?" So I thought that was great as well. You talked about your time at Sux Gallery when you were director. And in my in my research for this, I went through the internet and I learned about the culture wars of the eighteen of the 1980s. And you faced bomb scares and death threats because of Piss Christ. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, about how have you seen culture move with art and art move with culture since your time as an art gallery director to being an art advisor?
1: Actually, the fight over the NEA or National Endowment for the Arts, over taxpayer dollars, and whose right it was to define what art could be these censorship wars erupted at three distinct periods in my professional career. One was around 1988, and I was working at the Robert Miller Gallery, and of course we represented Robert Maplethorpe. And there was an exhibition called The Perfect Moment. And this exhibition was curated by a woman called Janet Cardin. And in a way, she's a bit of a heroine. She uh, was then a curator at the um, ICA in Philadelphia. And she had organized this momentous show. And I think it's really interesting because she talked about how her husband had said, you know, are you sure you want to get into this? And she said, no, full scheme ahead. She organizes the show and it happens without incident at the ICA. It then goes to Chicago, also well received. And then it's planned to go to the Corcoran Gallery or Corcoran Museum uh, of Art in Washington, D.C. There, uh, the person in charge is a woman called Christina or Cahill and she, uh, became afraid of the storm that was to come and she decided to kill the exhibition, which created an enormous backlash. And um, And then at some point, the show was meant to go on to the CAC in Cincinnati, Contemporary Art Center in C- Cincinnati. The director there was a man called Dennis Barry. And when he decided to actually uh, go forward with the show, uh, he wound up being arrested on charges of obscenity and child pornography. Um, this was because he, uh, part of the exhibition, The Perfect Moment, included something called the X-Portfolio, which were uh, scenes that contained graphic um, sadomasochistic imagery, as well as there were images of two young girls uh, uh, that were exposed. Uh, but of course, the most infamous image was the man in a polyester suit. Um, and this, again, created an incredible uproar. Uh, In the end, Dennis Barry, the CAC, was vindicated and um, that was just another sort of notch on the art world belt of of greater acceptance. Uh, But also simultaneously, um, I moved to uh, the Stux Gallery where I show Piss Christ uh, in the gallery for the first time. It had been shown before, uh, again without too much incident, but now uh, there's growing outrage for this work. And many people have seen the work or have heard of the work Piss Christ, but for those who are unfamiliar with the work, I think it begs description. Um, Piss Christ is a plexiglass vitrine, a very well-crafted vitrine, which was filled with the artist's urine. Submerged in this bodily fluid is a plastic crucifix that measured about 12 and a half inches. The setup is dramatically backlit. The actual plastic figure of Jesus is relatively small but the resulting composition he the figure of Jesus looms quite large. This graphic description doesn't begin to describe the glorious colors achieved by Serrano. Explosive golden orange hazes, uh, the colors are almost Rothko-like. They remind me in some respects of the attempts that gothic artists and architects wanted to achieve by the inclusion of a rose window, this glorious light coming through. And so it was all about luminosity. And um, But I think Andres really was grappling with his Catholic upbringing. He was a lapsed Catholic, but he was trying to make sense of the church's teachings, uh, this idea of separation of body and spirit. And in, in a way, he saw this image as a way to merge the two uh, he was also making a statement about the commercialization of religion. But Andre actually rever- revered crucifixes. Um, he had a collection, and when you would visit his studio, they were all uh, crucifixes from all periods, uh, from antiquity to the present. And um, you know it was a form that he absolutely loved. Uh, so I think it's it's uh, it's unfair that people describe the work as a crucifix thrown in a jar of piss. That's really not what the work was. And um, for anybody who actually came in and looked at the the actual photograph, they were usually mesmerized and, and conceded that it was a work of great beauty. So, you know, later, I, um, as i mentioned, I've worked quite closely with the work of, of Damien Hurst. I knew Damien Early. I knew Dave, Jay Jopling. Um, Jay Jopling was a young dealer before he had the, the gallery White Cube. Uh, it's One smaller version started off on Dover Street. It was a sort of closet of a space. Um, but while I was uh, spending a lot of time in London and getting to know uh, these artists, I had visited the famous... Freeze exhibition not the Freeze Art Fair but the Freeze exhibition that had been curated I believe in 1988 by Damien Hirst and it was his work but it was work of others and it really uh, gave an extraordinary insight into the artist's soul I mean I can remember that exhibition as I was yesterday it was in the Surrey docks and I got lost and I didn't know my way around and I ultimately ran into a great collector um, a woman called Janet de and uh, thankfully, like an angel appearing out of nowhere, she pointed me in the right direction for the exhibition. But that show, like, etched a tattoo on my brain. I, I was—it was so amazing. I feel like I, I can see it as we're talking. And um, you know, I felt that I understood the artist in his choices, not only in his work, but in his choices. He unveiled himself, and from then on, I was smitten. Uh, with his work. So when the Sensation Exhibition came to the Brooklyn Museum uh, in the late 90s, it started in 1997, this was um, an exhibition of the works owned by then mega-collector Charles Saatchi. Charles Saatchi uh, was an advertising figure and he knew how to get attention and this extraordinary work uh, introduced to America, although I had already been introduced, to the YBAs or Young British Artists and amongst the artists, of course, Damien Hurst, Tracy Emin, Mark Quinn, Sarah Lucas, Gary Hume, and Chris O'Feely. Now, this time, <laughs> the offended political figure was then-mayor Rudy Giuliani. And the source of Giuliani's ire uh, was the Holy Virgin Mary of 1996. And this was a fabulous work with a glittering gold background which sort of alluded to early Sienese Madonna paintings and um, Chris added a little hip-hop spirit to this. He collaged images of um, black exploitation films. And in some cases, women's body parts like behinds. And um, he, he, he was trying to speak to a younger audience. He was trying to contextualize this for a younger audience. So then there was the elephant dung. There was one mound, which uh, was a surrogate for one of her breasts and two other mounds on which the painting was propped. Well, Giuliani uh, described the work as utterly blasphemous. Uh, I think he called his practice, Ophelia's practice, disgusting. Um, Of course, again, Giuliani was completely unaware and close to the context. Context is everything, context is king. Uh, Ophelia grew up in Manchester, but was of Nigerian descent. Um, In parts of Africa and India, animal dung is sacred material. The artist also had just come back from Zimbabwe, he was thinking about nature, he was thinking about mother nature. And also I might add, um, he was thinking about elephants, uh, which are uh, the animal kingdom's super moms. You know, they have this incredible memory, they can smell their offspring from far away, and of course they have this incredibly long gestation period. So they're really uber moms, and these were all of the ideas. That I believe were going into Chris's work, but again, um, hit a lot of closed minds. Um, I think it's interesting, Ophelia was an altar boy, and all of the artists uh, in question at the um, center, epicenter of the controversy were actually raised Catholic and of course many had given up their uh, uh, practice of Catholicism but were still grappling with the issues and engaged uh, profoundly with the 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 notions and the teachings Uh, but all three were also engaged with creating absolute beauty. So you had asked me Audrey how the art world has changed. Uh, The art world has Changed unbelievably. It is so much more multicultural, so much more multifaceted. You know, I remember the line from another former mayor, uh, Dinkins it's a gorgeous mosaic now. It's so global. And the art world has become much more accepting and open than it was when I first entered uh, its sphere. The credit goes to so many people, I couldn't even begin to name them. They're these wars, these culture wars, the, uh, so many warriors um, like Robert Miller, who showed artists who would be uh, deemed as uh, embracing a queer aesthetic. He showed many women, he showed artists of color, including uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Uh, I cannot uh, mention, not mention, Thelma Golden's seminal black male show that was held at the Whitney in 1994. Uh, There were other Whitney biennials that had great impact in terms of opening the floodgates of multiculturalism. And all of these things together, and so many more that I can't mention here, uh, have paved the way to greater acceptance in the art world. And I I would say have collectively served a purpose and, in a way, performed a service akin to Duchamp's original, uh, in 1917, use of the urinal and saying, you know what, this is art, and collectively these actions, these exhibitions, these warriors um, did the same thing. They opened up what definition of art could be. I think it's interesting there's a parallel in this with the civil rights movement. Um, That movement provided a template for women's rights. The 60s civil rights movement provided a a game plan in a way for women's rights in the 70s and for gay activism uh, in the 80s, 90s. And uh, that right goes right up if we really think about it to Obama. We watched Obama we witnessed Obama evolve on the issue of gay marriage. Um, and I think in the art world, or American art world, in the American art market, it was the queer aesthetic, particularly the work of Maplethorpe, that led to greater acceptance of women and artists of color, uh, both aesthetically as well as in the marketplace. So I think also want to make a point here that prior to Maplethorpe, photography wasn't even considered a fine art. It was considered totally commercial or something that had to do with fashion or selling. Um, it was not considered in the realms of fine art as it is today. So again, that was a big, big door um, opened by Mapplethorpe and his practice and also partly the controversy. Um, I have to add too, it was Mapplethorpe Serrano along with Cindy Sherman, Thomas Struth, Andreas Gursky, Thomas Roof, they all led to this change uh, in terms of understanding photography to be a genuine media and that opened the way to video, but again going down another entire path. so what does greater inclusiveness look like? Um, well, we can first talk a little, little bit about uh, women. I wish I just had so much more time. But anyway, recently I participated in a conference at Columbia entitled Women in an Inclusive Economy, hosted by the Nobel Prize winning economist Edmund Phelps. Um, and you know, as I was sitting there, I had some really um, dour uh, statistics to report, some that I would call cringeworthy. Uh, It is true uh, that the largest museums and the most heavily endowed museums are mostly run by men. There's one exception, it's Kaywin Feldman of the National Gallery of Art in Washington. However, I will say that there are a lot of women running museums right now, and I got to shout out. Just talked about the Brooklyn Museum vis-a-vis sensation. There's Anne Pasternak. I mentioned Thelma Golden and her Blackmail exhibition at the Whitney, but she now runs the Studio Museum of Harlem. There's Jessica Morgan at the Dear Art Foundation, Heidi Zuckerman in Aspen, at Melissa Chu at the Hirshhorn, and Stephanie Wiles, who's recently been appointed director of the Yale Art Gallery. Now. Um, these are not the largest institutions in in, in the orbit, uh, but they're very vibrant institutions. They're institutions that are punching way above their weight and they're institutions that are making headlines. So you know what, go ladies. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about the, quickly briefly about the art market. I remember sitting around with a bunch of um, really amazing women, young women well, of all ages, curators, critics, this was after a dinner, an art world dinner. And we ran on the table and we tried to name women artists who had fetched more than a million dollars at auction. And at the time there, I believe, were only three. And it was O'Keeffe, Georgia O'Keeffe, Louise Bourgeois, and Kusama. And even, you know, I piped in in with, what about Frankenthaler? And then I remembered, no, Frankenthaler at that time had only achieved $818,000 at auction. I mean, this is a woman who's in every single major museum in America and some in Europe, and she had not uh, transcended the million dollar mark. So that changed with a picture called Saturn Revisited at, uh, at Sotheby's. Uh, but it's just extraordinary that in a relatively short amount of time, you have a lot of women to break that barrier. Um, more recently, uh, Mitchell uh, Joan Mitchell, entitled Blueberry, sold at Christie's uh, for over sixteen million dollars, and then uh, a work of, by Krasner Lee Krasner called The Eye of the First Circle sold for eleven point seven, almost twelve million dollars this past fall. But The broader, on the broader spectrum, there's so many women who have now surpassed that million-dollar mark. Cindy Sherman, Cecily Brown, Jenny Saville, Rosemary Trockle, Julie Maritou. Um, It goes on and on. Forgive me if I'm forgetting anyone, but the point is you have more women uh, fetching really serious money. And... um, I also want to add that uh, uh, work by Georgia O'Keeffe holds a record for women artists over 44 million dollars of her beautiful white hibiscus flower purchased, I might add, by a woman, Alice Walton, who is, of course, one of the top buyers with her Crystal Bridges uh, Museum. And I also want to have to add here, too, that it was three women or groups of women who founded the major museums of New York. Uh, The MoMA, the Whitney, and the Guggenheim all have women in their stories, but that's another um, podcast interview. Anyway, a similar trajectory has taken place with respect to the African-American artists artist of color, uh, both men and women. I'm sure um, it's uh, general news now that uh, Kerry James Marshall, Past Times, was the name of the painting, sold to P. Diddy uh, for over $20 million. Um, Mark Bradford has uh, achieved over $12 million uh, fetched at auction. Uh, Mark, again, Bradford represented the U.S. in the Venice Biennale, Fred Wilson before him. I mean, uh, the world is evolving every minute. When I started out in this business, I was one of a handful. Um, in terms of artists, it was David Hammonds, the Harlem object maker that used everything from chicken wings to hair to discarded Thunderbird bottles, um, and the charming sculptor, Fred Eversley. There was Kiniston McChine, mythic curator at MoMA, Lowry Sims at the Met, Thelma Golden, then at the Whitney, and this lovely gallerist called June Kelly. I hope I haven't forgotten anybody, but these were the only brown faces that I saw from my perch at the front desk of Robert Miller. These were the only persons that were actually very, very visible and making the rounds at that time. So I know that there were other players, but um, these were the bold-faced names, but there was only a handful of them. And oh, I might add Gerard Basquiat because uh, Jean-Michel had already passed away. But I will say that it has changed. I I walk into galleries now, I walk into museums, to some extent, lesser extent auction houses, and I see all these beautiful black and brown faces. So the art world is like a completely different planet for me. It has changed. There's more to do, but the changes are miraculous, really.
0: That's incredible. I have just off the top of my head I have so many questions, Full of questions that I have just particularly deals with the economics of it. So I know that we read these headlines on the New York Times or oh this painting sold for x amount of million dollars at Sotheby's or this painting sold to you know Y collector for ABC amount. And my question is, what is the importance of artists fetching above a million dollars? So particularly as it concerns women artists, does it lead to a sort of domino effect where people take works by female artists much more seriously and see it as a much more sturdier investment that they're willing to pay over a million dollars for it?
1: Well, that's a really terrific question, Audrey. You know, uh, what is a million dollars? You know, money is is a thing that, that uh, that uh, is ever-fluid uh, amounts of money. I mean, look at, it, look at the, um, this, the Dow Industrials right now and, uh, and the stock exchange, you know, it's uh, going up and down in the middle of a coronavirus, you know, and what does it really mean? So it's largely psychological, that million-dollar barrier. Uh, um, it it, it uh, does not necessarily mean that, it, that something's even worth that amount, to be perfectly honest. But yes, I think it gives a certain amount of comfort uh, to collectors to know that this marker has been achieved.
0: And you also said that there's still a lot to be done in the art world uh, as it concerns black and brown faces. And from your perspective and from your um, kind of arena as an art advisor, what do you think needs to be done more? Is it the introduction of more uh, black and brown faces at museums? Is it the introduction of more black and brown artists? Like what like what sort of... Um, Things need to happen concurrently and simultaneously for us to see a much more multicultural art world.
1: Yeah. Well, again, it is moving towards multicultural. Uh, so I have to say that emphatically. I go to openings and I said, I'm like, I'm, I'm just astonished. And it, it's not necessarily uh, turn out for a black artist, um, but uh, I think, I think, you know, seeing is believing. Uh, the presence of more. People willing, uh, and the more you see, the more you're the, the more the path seems open. Um, so to that, I say, uh, uh, be seen, <laughs> be heard, and um, also be right. <laughs> um, conduct what, whatever uh, position you might hold in the art world or in in any world. Um, conduct it with dignity. You know, be right <laughs> because. Uh, because because we we are held to a different standard, and we are um, showing the way. So uh, I say more more of doing that and and more of doing it with the utmost dignity.
0: with the utmost dignity, i really I really admire that. and i do I do agree and will agree that there is a different standard. and that's why it's really important that women like you, people like you, can exist not only in the art world workforce but in just holding such a visible um, influence in your in your work, in your life. So it's incredible that you have decided to be with us here at The Catalyst and to share your wisdom and your truths. So thank you for being on The Catalyst. And I wanted to talk to you about making people understand context because you said something quite important. You said context is key, context is king. So when you have these, you know, works that are cutting edge, a bit avant-garde, a bit like if you don't really know the context, you're not going to get it. How do you make people Understand? Do you like write a little curator's note? Do you have a whole exhibition and really walk people through it? How do you understand?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say I do those curator's notes. That's that's um, whenever we we offer work to a client, we really take a lot of time. We focus again on the art history. That's our core, and uh, you 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 have to you want people to have a full grasp of uh, of what they are considering. Uh, uh, perhaps living with. So it's really important that we make sure that, that people are very, very educated. You know, um, it, it, it happens in the way of, as you said, those uh, curators' notes, really dissecting everything, making people sure, making sure that people understand what the artist is thinking, uh, feeling, uh, particularly when he, he or she has done that particular work. It's incredibly important because I don't want to be responsible later for somebody hanging something on their wall that um, maybe reflects values that... Uh, do not, uh, are not shared uh, by the owner. So that would be um, malpractice uh, in a way. So we take a lot of, of, of attention towards that. And, you know, we also take the position that if the work, you know, is in any way uh, 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 offensive or um, uh, abrasive, you know, then, then that's not the work for you. And that's okay. You know, I, I like for people to understand and make their own decisions. And um, we leave a lot of room for that a lot of space for
0: that. I love that. It feels like you play quite a personal role in your clients' lives. So in a former, in another interview, you said that as an art advisor, you consider yourself part art educator, part interior decorator, you know, part financial advisor. You play such a dynamic role in people's lives when they come to you as an art advisor. So I wanted if you could talk to us about what is a favorite aspect of yours of your job? You know, is it picking the art? Is it tailoring the art to the client? Um, is it finding a piece of art from an up-and-coming artist? Is it making sure that your client is getting the investment they're looking for? What really gets you going as an art advisor?
1: Oh my goodness, um, almost every aspect of it. That's really the truth. But if I, I'll, I'll unpack this a bit, but um, I'd say if you're just the, my favorite parts are the study, of the initial study of a particular work, um, the art history <laughs> that I find, you know, the absolute fascinating. Uh, what makes this artist tick? What made this artist tick when this artist put brush to? canvas or uh, chisel to stone. Um, that's really exciting. And this my second favorite all time uh, is when the work comes home. You know, I love uh, the point of installation. And uh, when the work is being unpacked and unwrapped, and it's in its, it's, in its intended environment, and um, seeing the work go up on the wall or seeing the sculpture maneuvered into place, uh, when the work is in situ, there's just this enormous Uh, sense of of gratification, uh, partly relief, depending on how complicated the installation is. But those are my my two favorite parts. But I enjoy every aspect. And I'll just, you know, go back to, um, you know, number one, as I said, education is the core of what we do. We want our, our clients to understand and have a basic grasp of art history and why a particular work or particular groups of works are important or why that artist is important or how they uh, created a new language um, and I always liken uh, uh, the, the um, creative act to creating a new language because it's something that you um, may never have heard before. You may be able to pick out a word or two or grasp it in the context of use. Uh, but the more you're exposed and the more you get familiar, then you start understanding. And first maybe you only understand a couple of words and then maybe you understand a sentence and then, you know, Eureka, you you really grasp the meaning. Uh, and, and I think that's like learning language. But um, so my uh, goal is, is that there's a basic fundamental grasp of art history. Uh, And um, I always uh, like to tell a story about a famous collector who's no longer on this earth. Uh, Her name was Frances Dittmer and uh, she was a dedicated wonderful collector and I met her years ago when I was working at the Robert Miller Gallery and I'll never forget she walked into the gallery and we had a Louise Bourgeois show an exhibition of works from the 40s and 50s called Personages. These are like almost totemic figures that stood in the gallery and I love to be there at night because I always felt like the the uh, these figures were part of like an opening or a cocktail party. They all had a different personality And it was a magnificent exhibition put together by John Scheim. Several galleries have done and museums have shown them together as well. But um, Frances Dittmer uh, was a very tall, strong woman with short cropped hair and she walked into uh, the gallery and she started pointing, I'll take this one, this one, this one, this one, and uh, I was like, whoa, man, this woman's amazing, and we wound up chatting a bit. Anyway, fast forward many years later, almost 30 years later, I was spending time in in Aspen uh, with my husband. He was um, training for the Leadville 100 race, and I was there quite a bit, and Frances had invited me to come see her collection, and I'd seen it at different places and different times, but um, her collection in Aspen, and this was a few months before she sadly passed away in a in a plane crash, uh, but um, I remember distinctly walking through her house and she'd stop at each and every work and describe not only the art history but how the work was made, its provenance, its condition uh, and some anecdote, you know, side um, Twombly told me this was his favorite work, um, you know, Stingle, blah 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 mentioned this and just every single work she knew through and through And I've often said that um, I walked out of there thinking that I want each and every one of my clients, in theory, to have that sort of passionate love and knowledge for each and every work that they acquire. Now, not everybody has that aptitude, but that's my goal. (laughs) So education, the curator part is really important because I want to know that all of the works together, collectively, tell a story. that they link together, that they have something to say, that each, I imagine that, uh, you know, when the lights are down and everyone's in, in bed, that the paintings talk to one another. And so I like to have this sense uh, that there is some sort of cohesiveness um, to the individual disparate works in a collection. Uh, the analyst part, you know, that's due diligence. Um, I need to know what is happening in the market that makes this potential acquisition either a very, very good one, or an extremely bad one. Now, that's from just a purely investment front, and a lot of people say, well, do do people collect only for investment? And I I say, you know what? Um, There are people out there, um, there there is a term called speculator, and that's somebody who buys just to flip to buy a work, and they know they're gonna turn it around and sell it in six months to a year. Um, I tend not to work with uh, people who are speculating. I have no judgment whatsoever. But most of my clients want to live with their works, but they don't want to lose money. So they'd like to know that there is appreciation. They'd like to know that they're that they're gonna they're gonna put their money into a painting that they love, but down the line that painting is going to have a healthy appreciation. And um, you know, having said that, I there are some times where a work of art. May be so personally appealing um, that is a work that you're going to hang in your bedroom and you're going to wake up in the morning it's going to create a smile and in that case the work is priceless and i make exceptions and sort of brush away uh, market analysis and say well you know what that um we can override those things because uh this painting is going to change your life so um It's weighing all of that and understanding your client, knowing them well enough to understand what the objectives are. Uh, Lastly, the interior decorator part of the uh, equation is I want the works to look beautiful in the home. Is your home a 60s modern glass-filled home? Maybe with no walls and you want sculpture that's gonna create a, a texture uh in in this space um do you have predominant class are you looking outside at nature as i am right now and watching the birds in the water and do you want to bring that into the into the house or reflect upon that maybe you want to go with more neutral palette or maybe you want to pick up the blues of the sky or the green of the grass so um, i'm always thinking about uh how to work with the architecture. Is it a Neo-Palladian uh, villa? Is it um, a, a, a Gothic space? In which case maybe you want some photographs that bring in nature and, and make it uh, uh, more light. Uh, these are the, the uh, decisions that I make uh, when I visited a, a pr- prospective client and we embark on the on the process, on the journey. Can I speak a little bit about the journey? Absolutely. Uh, Because a lot of people wonder how it all begins. You know, first and foremost, I want to dispel a myth. (laughs) I want to dispel the myth that somebody says, here's X million dollars and go do your thing. It doesn't happen that way. It's a great collaboration and the the best uh, projects that I've done have been in total concert with the client. You know, I'm not the authoritarian figure, nor are they. (laughs) So it's a real give and take, but typically how uh, a, a client would come to me is, is perhaps a new property. Um, sometimes uh, there will be a, a new situation or um, let's say it's a, a, an older collecting couple, maybe in their 70s who've decided that they don't want to buy impressionism anymore and they want to um, collect a younger generation of artists. Um, or sometimes it's just a new house. And that's usually how it begins you know, collectors evolve at different rates and some go on to build their own museums. Some uh, have uh, miles and miles of warehouse storage Uh, but most of the times it starts with the property or at least it does in the case of our advisory. And so the first thing I'll do is visit a home and see how that person lives, see what the architectural vocabulary is, what the style, what the person wears. Do they wear bright colors? Do they wear neutrals? Um, Do they wear very Baroque? Uh, you know, uh, um, come to Garcon or do they wear Chanel? You know, all of these things give me input into the person and how the person lives. Do they have kids? Do they have dogs? Um, So once we establish that and we walk around and maybe we talk about some key art spots, uh, impact walls I call them, um, then the next step, phase two, would be actually going out looking at museums, Uh, visiting museums, galleries. And all I do is take notes, what people respond to. I ask some questions like, who's your favorite artist? And what's the best museum exhibition you've ever seen? To try to kind of get a better sense of what their aesthetic leanings are. Um, And then we start to think about artists, identify artists, that would be step three, artists of interest, like who could be in the budget, who might be out of the budget? How do we find a less expensive artist? Maybe you love Warhol, but that's not a possibility. So who are younger generation artists who are in working in the Warhol vein? And lastly, then assessing those market parameters. Um, but uh, again, after the entire process and we start to embark on the acquisition uh, of work, You know, nothing is, is more exciting than seeing that work come home.
0: That's so beautiful, especially when it ends in the work coming home to the client. Mm-hmm. And I think what's really important for people to note is that like you said this isn't just i'm going to take all this money and just go shop for art this is this is analysis you know this is using my eye that you've trained over years and years of experience years and years of you know constantly looking at references to pull from it's work it's work and i think that when people look toward particular industries such as fashion such as art they only see the glamour you know they only see the art you know they see the beauty of it but but it is work and you put a lot of time into it which is just evident by incredible position in the industry and I wanted to actually talk about your view of the industry. I know that you particularly care about topics of gender, particularly women in the art world workforce, so I wanted if you could just speak to us about the status of women in the art world workforce and how you've, you know, contributed to their progression as a private art advisor.
1: Yes, uh, well one of the ways in which I think I've contributed is uh, in the fact that I have hired a lot of women, and we have this amazing uh, internship program uh, where um, we uh, have trained lots of lovely women, you know, such as yourself, Audrey. <laughs> and uh, we—that's something that has meant very much to, to me over the years. Uh, for for 27 years now, we've um, we've been taking on interns. So that's, I think, a very very uh, big uh, part of what I do. I am also. Um, uh, very passionate about mentoring uh, young women and um, when anybody ever says I'd love to talk to you about your, your career or I'd like to get into the art world um, I think it's very very important uh, not only to just talk to them on the phone I will make a date for lunch or tea so I can actually spend time because I think it's really important to show up and I have just this amazing beautiful coalition rainbow of women who um, are either pursuing careers as art advisors in cities as, as uh, disparate as uh, uh, New Mexico to uh, Dubai. I have uh, women who are working in uh, the top galleries, uh, or have worked in the top galleries, Gagosian pace. Um, Zwerner, David Zwerner, uh, or working in, in major auction houses, Christie's and Sotheby's. And I'm so proud of it. Uh, but I'm also, it's, it's just an extraordinary resource. Um, I just did a, a, a deal with uh, one of my former directors who works at Sotheby's. Um, in the midst of this, in this very, very difficult time, uh, we um, just sold a, a work by uh, de Kooning. Um, and I uh, Uh, she's just, I just love to watch how she's grown. She's a terrific writer. She sometimes sends me still her essays, her catalogue entries for auction works and um, I'm just very, very proud. I will say also that um, years ago, I was featured in um, Oprah magazine, O magazine, Oprah Winfrey's magazine, on two occasions. And I would have women uh, coming up to me in galleries, on the street, in restaurants, saying, "I really want to get into the art world, and how do I do that?" And you've inspired me. Well, um, I just got chills thinking about one particular woman who I, with whom I still keep in touch, and. Um, those words have really nourished and sustained me over the years. I'm very proud of that.
0: And you are an inspiration. You are an incredible inspiration. And that's one of the reasons why I reached out to you. <laughs> because you are... and. And in the context of the catalyst, you're a really special guest because you're the first African-American female guest of ours, which I'm so like, I'm just so incredibly happy that it was you because I think you've definitely set the standard of not only the type of guests we're looking for, but the impact you've had. And it's been so clear that not only do you care about your work and people always say you really have to love what you do and you clearly love what you do, but your emphasis on mentorship, your emphasis on showing up so incredibly important and I think that during my time at Harvard the most important things that I've come to find or the most important things that have really impacted me positively have always been when professors show up for me, have always one, been when people make time for me and to hear that you make time for people coming up to you on the street and saying you inspire me is just fills my heart with so much joy. And speaking of Oprah Winfrey, you actually received a call from her. And when I heard this story, I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. But in 2019, you received a call from Oprah because she wanted your help with creating the first ever all women Sotheby's auction to benefit Miss Potter's school. And that auction raised nearly $4 million for underprivileged scholarships for Ms. Potter School. And I know that you are quite passionate about women in the art world workforce. So I wanted to ask you, how do art lovers like myself and art professionals like yourself and art buyers and our curators, how can we become more conscious about women in the art world workforce? And how can we contribute to raising their status?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I think uh, a big, uh, a part of the equation is um, just whenever you have the opportunity uh, to see and and uh, support an exhibition by a woman, um, uh, there was this great exhibition at the Guggenheim, uh, I don't know if you had heard of it, but um, a Swedish artist called uh, Hilma F. Klint. And uh, this is a, a spiritual abstractionist, a total game changer, she actually literally uh, uh, created work and left specific instructions that the work uh, not be shown uh, for a period of, I forget the exactual time, but uh, she felt that the work was too advanced, (laughs) too advanced uh, for people to digest at that moment. Uh, The the more important thing is that that some of her work, her abstractions, predate uh, the abstractions of Kandinsky, for instance, who is really widely considered the father of abstractionists. So I think that uh, this show was revo- really a revolution and, uh, uh, and the sheer numbers of people that actually went to see the exhibition, it turned out to be a blockbuster. And um, just the talk and the chatter that this creates. Uh, so really just again, showing up. Uh, is a really important uh, way that you can support showing up and sharing uh, your information on social media. Hey, I saw this exhibition, I really loved it. Um, Word of mouth, it has power. I think that um, there is something called Art Table, which uh, uh, one can join. It's um, it's an association dedicated to sharing information about women in the arts and um, both artists, but also women professionals. And um, they've got a very good website, they conduct panels and seminars, and they do um, annual luncheons, always somehow I've got something going on to conflict with those luncheons, but I I am a supporter of art table. And um, then there's something called Guerrilla Girls. Uh, if you're maybe a little bit on the more radical side of things, the Guerrilla Girls, uh, w- they almost uh, began at the, at, the, at the birth of my career. Uh, and I remember their staged interventions. This is a group of artists, mostly artists, women, who don uh, full-on guerrilla masks. And in the mid-80s, I think they began in 18, um, 1985, they would uh, stage interventions and go to a museum and create a ruckus and draw attention to the lack of women uh, um, who are represented by museums in the collections and in their exhibition programming. So I um, think that this is, uh, uh, these are a few ways, uh, a do-it-yourself model, art table, and then a real uh, um, uh, more activist approach.
0: Right. And those and all of those are valid. And speaking of the Guerrilla Girls, in my tutorial for my concentration, which is romance and criticism literatures, we talked about the Guerrilla Girls in respect to this very famous French feminist, Helen Sixou, where she was basically talking about the importance of women writing, that women have to write their own stories. And that's how we can kind of combat everything we see when it comes to men's dominance of literature. And I think the Guerrilla Girls were definitely talking about the same thing women have to create, women have to really show themselves, but also people have to let women. And show themselves. And so I want to ask you a little bit more of a personal question. When it comes to, you know, your interests, we know that you love art, you know, your life is art, your work is art. What types of other art forms are you interested in? Because I, I know that you mentioned that you write. So do you write novels? Do you write for fun? Do you write poetry? Do you paint maybe?
1: Oh, that's that's a sweet question. Um, I do not paint, uh, but my mother did. And um, that had a profound impact on me. We we had art history books all over the house. My mother um, uh, had friends who were artists. You know, I remember as a little girl going to visit studios um, in lower Manhattan, um, one on uh, on Long Island. And I just I remember the smell of paint and I remember thinking, God, this is just so cool. Um, My mother wrote poetry. Um, And so uh, I understood. My mom also um, suffered from depression and um and I noticed that when she was uh, painting that she was peaceful and calm and content. So for me uh art equaled happiness (laughs) and uh you know I think this is this is really something at my core. I say now like uh Unfortunately, by the grace of God, I've, I've never had to, to felt the need to take an antidepressant. But I say art is my antidepressant. Um, when, uh, let's say, a deal has gone awry, or um, I've suffered some personal, you know, bad news, or a friend is not doing well, uh, the first thing I do is I go to the Met <laughs> and I'll pick a painting and just focus on that painting. Or I will look at a sunny. Yellow Rothko on my computer screen at high res, and um, that really, actually, just has a, an enormously calming effect uh, on body and mind. And so I think that I believe in art's power to heal, and um, and these these are these are just sort of fundamental uh, tenets of, of mine, and that's why I'm so passionate to share. But um, speaking about writing, I, I actually am working on a book, <laughs> so. Um, it at its really early phases, uh, but it's a combination of, of, of a book that's, we'll talk about art, but art and travel. Um, all of the glorious places that art has taken me, um, where an artwork has summoned me, um, uh, I'm very interested in, in, the, in the connection to the two. So I will, uh, for instance, talk about how I've been going to, to Venice for my goodness, nearly forty years now um, to see the Biennale in different ways. You know, first as a as a student once with a of, um, years ago with a former boyfriend, Italian boyfriend, um, and then right through to as a as a full on professional and talk about the amazing exhibitions that I remember. Right now, I'm in the process of of writing about the experience of an incredible Joseph Kasuth uh, That was his signature. He's a conceptual artist, and his signature. Uh, neon wrapping around an ancient monastery on a private uh, island um, surrounding Venice. And as you uh, approach to this, we were going there for the opening and the dinner uh, that took place outside in the courtyard of this monastery. Uh, You're approaching at night and the neon is uh, reflected in the water like so many phosphorescent fish. And I remember like pulling up to this and being with a group of very sophisticated people. And we were just like, oh, our jaws were dropped and oohs and ahs. And it's it's very hard to uh, uh, surprise or uh, uh, really uh, affect art world people because we're so used to seeing so many incredible things. But this was just jaw dropping. And um, uh, the, the letters that are in neon are, uh, the word water in many different languages. And it's just an amazing. So I'm, I'm trying to describe that. That's not easy to put down in words. It's not easy to talk about how the hair might stand up at the nape on the nape of your neck, or um, it's hard to describe what gives you goose flesh, but this did. And um, so I'm working on that. And then I, also in the book, another chapter will be spending time in Vitoy with Joan Mitchell. Another uh, chapter will um, will focus on the purchase of an extraordinary work by Brancusi, a work called Sleeping Muse, a very beautiful work uh, uh, from the early uh, 20th century. This work happened to be included in the famed Armory Show, that Armory Show that took place in 1913 and introduced an American audience to the great masters of European modernism. And so it's got an incredible provenance, an incredible history. Anyway, I bought the work at Christie's and then had a slew of uh, phone calls and emails and people want, you know, where's the work going? Well, I couldn't say that. It was going to a private collector. Uh, But um, I did say two things. I said, uh, for me, modern sculpture begins and ends with Kurt Brancusi, and that I've always wanted to visit uh, the birthplace of the artist, and that, unleashed another um, a g- grouping of emails. And one was a, a, a man called Radu Varie. He said, do you really want to come to Romania? And if you do, when? And I'm going to take you on a trip of a lifetime. So that launched this incredible uh, um, adventure, really, to see uh, Brancusi's birthplace in Hobica and to see the famous complex uh, endless column. So um, that is a book that I am working on right now.
0: That sounds like an incredible book and I'm very excited to read it. And again, as you speak about your career and your journey, there's always a story, right? As you said, you care about the story behind the stories and it really does come out when you speak about, you know, the travels you've gone, why you like purchase certain works for clients, it really does come out. And you were talking earlier about art's healing properties And as someone that grew up with a father that's an artist, so my father's a sculptor, he's a painter. I think he like creates some of the best stuff I've ever seen, such an immense talent. He created a life-size bust of my mother, of her face as like a gift for Mm -hmm. her. So I've always believed in art's ability to showcase love, right? How you can showcase you love something or someone through art, whether you create, you know, art in someone's image or you create art for someone. And I wanted to talk to you about your, your greatest loves. So when it comes to your life and the incredible, incredible life you've lived, what have you loved the most outside of art? And um, when, you, when you think of love, what do you think?
1: Oh my goodness, um, my husband, <laughs> my Australian husband, my Australian shepherd puppy, uh, but on a broader uh, sense, um, God and nature. I love nature. I love being in nature. Um, I think that's uh, the greatest gift one can give oneself. Uh, So to that extent, um, I'm looking at a kayak, I'm going to go for a kayak later. Um, I, uh, I like to sail. Uh, I used to ride, I don't anymore, but I'm thinking about getting back into it, so horses. So um, yes, that's the thing that people don't really know very much about me, that how profoundly connected I am to the natural world. Um, I, uh, we have a house in uh, Bridgehampton on Long Island in the Hamptons, and we're quite close to the beach. We're on the bay, but uh, very close to the beach. And I literally walk uh, twice a day um, at sunrise, or a little thereafter. Uh, and uh, always at sunset, it's uh, it's the way I start my day. And when I'm in New York, by the way, I walk in the park every day, not twice a day because usually I'm busier when I'm in New York. But um, uh, always every morning, I start my morning with a with a morning walk. I think it it clears uh, the mind, it uh, it 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 settles uh, uh, the soul, and it um, it also is a place where I sort of. Uh, work out the what I'm going to do for the day and, uh, and how I'm going to do it. So, nature. <laughs>
0: nature. No, my mother, my mother is of the same belief. When my father was going through a bit of health complications, she wanted to redo the house. So, in their bedroom, she added a balcony because she said, this is what will heal you. And it sure enough was exactly what healed him was being out in nature. And because my dad's an artist, he would look at the trees and like describe the color of the leaves as like juicy. He's like, oh, that's such a juicy green. And that would inspire him to do more art. So certainly nature and art are two of my greatest loves as well. And to end our conversation, again, I want to end on a bit more of a personal note. So when it comes to the future, have you thought about your next act? And if you have, where do you see yourself in respect to your personal world and even your professional world?
1: Hmm. Uh, the future right now is, uh, is a little more complex than if we had uh, talked about this, um, well, a month, six weeks ago, you know, uh, as um, uh, a byproduct uh, a result of this um, the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, the question of how... Uh, the business of art will be conducted is is looming on everyone's mind. Um, what is the future of art? Uh, will there be art fairs in the way that we have experienced them? Auctions? Um, how will museums operate? So these are all questions that are that are very much uh, on my mind right now. So um, in fact, I've, I've been checking in with colleagues uh, literally every day. I'll, I'll call one or two colleagues and, and just we'll just talk and just first to find out how they're doing, how they're faring in isolation, um, and then what are what are their thoughts? Not to not to conduct business, just to, to really you know uh, hear uh, what they're thinking. The future might hold. Of course, no one has a crystal ball, and most people are are very aware that that we do not know what the next steps will be. But in an art world that has been described as a treadmill because there have been as many as 55 art fairs, that's over an art fair a week. And uh, where most of my colleagues are not in one place or not at home um, for a week or two at a time, uh, the art world's gonna slow down. For sure and uh, and it may be picked back up again but I have a feeling things are going to change and it's really funny because um, years ago I was at a dinner hosted by a lovely, lovely South Korean gallerist uh, called Tina Kim and it was to inaugurate their space in Chelsea and I sat next to a gentleman whose name is escaping me right now but he was a, um, ran a design firm and I um, I said then, and this is, I think, 2015, that I wanted to usher in the slow art movement <laughs> um, because things had gotten so sort of frantic. And you know, really, the core of what we do is to look at art. And let's face it, you know, um, it's not a film, it's not a novel, it's not even a, a listening to a symphony. Looking at a painting uh, is 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 relatively a short time frame compared to other art forms. But you know, somebody took days, months, years to complete the painting. Don't we owe it to that artist, alive or dead, to spend a little more time with that work? And so I am hoping that uh, there is a movement towards slowing things down a bit. Um, I am hoping that art looking <laughs> Art viewing will come back more to the galleries, and as opposed to the fairs, where you've got to get through, uh, you know, 150 booths uh, in a prescribed amount of time. I'm hoping that uh, people will spend a little more time, more than the average. I think is 30 seconds, uh, and look more carefully, and look more closely, and give art its uh, its due. Um, but, uh, in terms of what my future holds, and it's been something I've been thinking about, well, I guess since 2015, um, I do want to write more. I do want to curate more and I want to take these extraordinary experiences that I have and share them with more people, obviously through digital means. Um, you know, I think I've been very privileged for over 27 years to work with, you know, titans of industry, celebrities, royalty, rock stars, and, um, we visited these fairs together, and I've uh, taken uh, my clients often on art pilgrimages. Um, and uh, I think now I'm gonna try to find a way to take uh, a wider audience. I wanna take the world with me now, you know? So if I've been a boutique, you know, I'm ready to franchise. And I think that's, that's the way my future looks.
0: If I've been a boutique, I'm ready to franchise. It's a quote. It's a quote right there. Incredible. I'm ready to franchise. I'm excited. I'm excited for your franchise. I'm excited for you to bring art to the masses. I think we need them. During this whole COVID-19 situation, people have definitely been noting that in our darkest hours, what we're turning to is art. You know, People are reading more, people are relaxing more, watching TV, and, and all of those are art forms. And so it really does go to show the importance of art. And I think that in our very capitalist society, in a society that values productivity, people sometimes don't value the productivity of art. People sometimes don't value art for art's sake, as you said, we just kinda like wanna look at something pretty and then look at something pretty again. So definitely bring it to the masses. We're, we're, we're ready for it, Kim.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so in wrapping up, I just wanted to remind everyone that art brings about empathy. Think about it. When you look at a painting, you're peering into the artist's soul. So in my next act, I want to explore art as a catalyst for transformation and a vehicle for tipping the word towards compassion.
0: I love that. And when you say a catalyst for a transformation, is it individual transformation or a collective transformation?
1: I think we're on the path of collective transformation, but I think both, for sure both. I think everyone that looks at a painting is transformed and becomes somehow immersed in someone else's world. And that does promote um, empathetic response. And that's what we need now more than anything and more than everything.
0: Absolutely, in total agreement. And you actually are trying out a new venture called Notes on a Painting. And is this part of your art as empathy, art as empathy venture, kind of sharing a pieces of your favorite paintings with the world?
1: Well, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I hadn't quite a- thought about it in that respect. It was more uh, a way of pure sharing. But yes, and I, I think more importantly, I want to show that um, the art world tends to look at things very theoretically. And in terms of art history, which I love, but also in terms of theory. And this is not something that is necessarily particularly inviting. Um, It it can be opaque for some. And I want to give people permission to appreciate an artwork based on its color alone or based upon the movement of the brushwork. or based upon the fact that an artist does something, not necessarily even in his art or her art, lives in a way that expresses something that touches you. And those are also ways in which to appreciate art. It doesn't have to be on the theoretical level or even the art historical level. So again, it's about giving people permission to enjoy and express and use terms that they might think are not art world friendly because that's not what it's about it's really about how something impacts you here in the heart and yeah I want I want to I want to make art more accessible I want to make art more accessible
0: that's incredible make art more accessible art for art's sake and so for anyone listening that's interested in this endeavor please follow Kim on Instagram at Kim Hurston where she will have notes on a painting which is something I've definitely enjoyed myself as an art lover so once again Kim from the bottom of my heart thank you so much for taking the time to be on the catalyst I know you're an incredibly busy woman and I know that in all aspects of your life you do incredible things so I'm really happy that you were able to share parts of your incredible self with us so thank you once again
1: absolutely thank you